Tim. Sam. Sam. Tim. I think we're a bit too social distanced. Tim and Sam's podcast. 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 Sam and Toby have a podcast which is really, really great. They serve up musical We've never done a pod like this before, Tim. It's unprecedented times, not just for us, not just for classical music, but for most people in the world at the moment. But we're going to be a ray of sunshine in these troublesome times, bringing you feel-good classical stories from across the world. Tim talks to some of the people who've been live-streaming from their living rooms to keep us all entertained. Sam tells tales of the unexpected from birthday boy Joseph Papa Haydn. And we've still got the best bloody jingles out there. We do. That was the sound of the Rotterdam Philharmonic, each member of which recorded their part in Beethoven's Paean to Humanity, the Ninth Symphony, whilst at home in self-isolation. The video was recorded in partnership with the Dutch elderly care home company, Senior Service, with the aim of boosting morale amongst the global classical community. Inevitably, today's episode has a heavy corona tang in its mouth, but inspired by the folks over in Rotterdam, we've made every effort to focus on the positive bits of news so that hopefully we can boost your morale as well. We must do everything to ensure their survival. It is the very future of our cultural model that is at stake. These are the words of French culture minister Franck Riester, currently in self-isolation after testing positive for COVID-19, who has made 22 million euros or 20.3 million pounds available in compensation to preserve French cultural institutions. The German culture minister Monica Grutkes has also just announced what she calls a rescue umbrella for the cultural, creative and media sectors, and that will total up to 50 billion euros. The Swiss government have allocated 280 million francs, or 240 million pounds, to culture and sport over the next two months. The Norwegian culture minister, Arbid Raha, announced a crisis aid package aimed at compensating lost ticket revenues and income to the tune of 900 million krona, aptly named currency, or £70 million, whilst freelancers have been offered 80% of their average income over the past three years. Elsewhere, over in the US, Netflix has set up a $100 million fund for creatives whose jobs have been affected, but nothing from the state, as far as I can tell from my 
research. NPR have put together a list of resources where businesses and workers in the culture sector can apply for emergency financial assistance on the local and federal level, uh, but it's all very much application basis, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. You can see a link in the description for that if we've got any US listeners. Here in the UK, music industry and charity leaders, including the Musicians Union General Secretary Horace Truebridge, sounds like a Harry Potter character. Great name. Have signed a joint open letter to the Chancellor asking for a package of urgent measures to help the crisis hit sector fight the impact of the coronavirus. The union has also announced a hardship fund for its members and applications for that are now open. Within the House of Commons... MPs, including sometime cellist Thangham Debonair, Rachel Reeves, Kevin Brennan and Stephen Doughty, have been asking parliamentary questions on our behalf and putting pressure on ministers to do more. Mm, A rescue package is also being devised by Arts Council England. The Quango's chief exec, Darren Henley, has repurposed the entire organisation, dumping its less essential projects to deal with the crisis. So that means relaxing funding conditions so that companies can get their grant money without having to put on shows, and also provisions which arts organisations can channel to freelance artists that they employ. However, this only helps the subsidised sector And the chief arts critic at the Times, Richard Morrison, has called for a repurposing of the £130 million that have been earmarked for the so-called Festival of Brexit in 2022. Yeah, we need to bring that cash forwards and give it to the artists now, really, don't we, rather than hang on for another two years. Yeah, it's a very sensible idea. Tim, for our quick-fire news beat this week, what kind of beat do you fancy? I'm thinking something country. Yeah, with a touch of the skiffles. Mm. A light has appeared at the end of Japan's corona-shaped tunnel. On Friday, the Tokyo Symphony Orchestra received government clearance to perform on the following day as part of the Opera City series. Also on Friday, the music-sharing platform Bandcamp redirected the entirety of its revenue shares to artists in a 24-hour drive to keep them afloat. English Touring Opera have committed to paying its 67 freelancers their fees for the full tour, including for the 52 performances that were cancelled this week. English National Opera have also committed to honouring all contracts up until the 18th of April. Mm, After resigning from the American Guild of Musical Artists, Placido Domingo made a $500,000 contribution to the AGMA Relief Fund in order to help members in crisis and to conduct training and education to eradicate sexual harassment in our industries. Consequently, the recent disciplinary charges filed against him by the union have been withdrawn. Tom Daggett, an organist at St Paul's Cathedral, has set in motion what is being called a virtual hymn flash mob. After recording choristers singing hymns at the cathedral last week, thousands of students across the country have followed suit, recording musical gifts for anyone feeling ill, lonely or isolated in their community. You can find the videos at the hashtag HimFlashMob. In self-isolation There's no conversation My one consolation Model transportation I have a thing where I make models of buses. I think it's fair to say we're all living in slightly unpredictable times at the moment. You're not wrong about that, Sam. Well, today, I've got the musical manifestation of that. It's time for... 
The tales of the musically unexpected. <laughs> but we're still doing analysis, right? Yes, it's about Haydn. Analysis. Music creates expectation in all sorts of ways, from repeating patterns to harmonic progressions. One of the most common tales of the musically unexpected is the interrupted cadence. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a sneaky switch to chord six. Exactly. Rather than the common pattern of chord five, the dominant, to chord one, the tonic, instead we swerve the last minute to chord six. Expectation and surprise. Can you have a surprise without an expectation? Ooh, Tim, now you're talking, and that should not come as a surprise. We're going to hear a clip now of the master of musical misdirection, the hilarious Joseph Haydn. Here's the opening of his symphony number 102 in B-flat major. Yes, you did hear that right, 102. Haydn was a busy man. And here is the crucial moment of recapitulation where he brings back those opening themes. Ooh, something felt wrong about that. You're right, Tim. Something is wrong. Much like Jonathan Wass, on a trip to Blackpool Beach, we're on the one key. Typically, the first movement of a classical symphony is in sonata form. There is a large-scale harmonic tension set up in the first third of that movement. Think of it as the initial gambit. Say we know Rocky is going to have a boxing match against Apollo Creed. The second third involves a bit of developmental distancing from the tonic key. To continue the analogy, both characters have separate training montages. Then there's a magnificent resolution showdown as the double return of the themes from the beginning and the tonic key come back together. The boxing match is settled. But in Symphony 102, Haydn hasn't had a double return. We've just had the return to the original material in the wrong key. That's right, Tim. It's an unexpected moment. A false recapitulation. A fake. A dupe. The real double return is later. Haydn has tricked his audience. So why has he done that? Is it a joke or a deception of the audience? Or Don't worry about the why just yet, Timbo. What we know for certain is that this isn't the only trick he pulled to undermine the conceptual, structural expectations of sonata form. Here's a snippet from Symphony Number no. 55, Movement 1, where he whacks a load of the tonic in the development section where we're supposed to be distancing. Which rather undermines the sense of return a mere 16 bars later. If you're going to distance yourself, you've got to do it properly. Pertinent advice, Tim. And Haydn's at it again in his string quartet, Opus 50, number one where the initial theme returns in the tonic whilst we're still developing and altering it. 
it becomes not so much a deception as an unprompted elaboration. But always with Haydn, he gives us the unexpected. Okay, so why was he doing these unusual things? Tim, I don't have an actual answer for you, at least not a certain one. But I do have a rather good cop-out about why it's important. Go on. Well, I could say that I think he's being funny or playing tricks on his audience, but that would be guesswork. It would be projection on my part. All I can say is that, perhaps more than anything else, a false recapitulation, an alteration of sonata form, even an interrupted cadence, makes us aware that there is such a thing as a composer's intention and its effect upon the listener. They made us think one thing was going to happen, and then when something else did, we were surprised. We become aware of the author. Haydn makes us conscious of his composership of the work, kind of like seeing a making-of documentary for a film. Suddenly we realise Spielberg wants you to feel this, and that's why he's showing you a particular image. We realise Haydn wants us to have this expectation, and then surprise us with this deviation. And those little tales of the unexpected, that realisation that not only do the notes have an internal rhetoric, but that a composer is shaping that rhetoric, is what lays the groundwork for the public to really start considering composers geniuses in the 19th century. Because we're more aware of the composer, we realise they're communicating through music. I certainly think so. Haydn worked like a butler for most of his career, wearing a uniform and writing a string quarter every time someone important came to lunch. Later in life, he toured and also taught Beethoven briefly, showing the younger man a few tricks. But the teacher really laid the groundwork for his pupil to be considered the greatest artist of all time, much earlier, by leading audiences to realise that they were having their expectations and emotions manipulated by the music, and therefore by the composer. Composer fact file, Franz Josef Haydn. Born Rocheral, Austria in 1732, the same year as George Washington. His miraculous singing voice led to him joining the Vienna Cathedral Choir, aged just five. As his voice changed, Empress Maria Theresa described his performance as... Not so much singing as crowing. He was fired from the choir aged 17 for cutting off another boy's hair. Aged 29, he was employed by the Esterhazy family as a palace musician, a role he held for 30 years. His orchestra at Esterhazy included fellow composer Franz Liszt's father. During his one-year tour of London, he earned almost as much as he had in 20 years working at Esterhazy. Inspired by his time in London, he wrote oratorios and also honed the tune Austria, which would become the national anthem of Austria and Germany. At a performance of the creation late in his life, Salieri conducted the orchestra, Beethoven was in the audience, and Haydn was carried in on a throne because of his failing health. When Napoleon invaded Vienna in 1809, Haydn commanded such respect that two sentries were put on guard so that he would not have to move. He died peacefully in 1809. Mozart's Requiem was played at his funeral. After his death, his skull was stolen by phrenologists, only to be reunited with his body in 1954. Forced to live alone in Esterhazy, he once said, My isolation forced me to become original. In self-isolation there's no conversation My one consolation is frequent masturbation whoa, whoa, whoa.
You've got to pick a pocket or two. The third movement from Ludwig van Beethoven's fifth piano concerto. Carl Davis's soundtrack to the 1995 adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. You got to pick a pocket or two. These ad hoc concerts shouldn't be seen as any sort of wave of the future. We are already too sedentary and technology addicted in our relationship with the arts. The monopolies that rule the digital realm possess unheard of power and non-celebrity artists increasingly struggle in a marketplace where audiences no longer expect to pay for recorded music. So wrote Alex Ross in The New Yorker last week, and of course he's right. After the forced closure of hundreds of concert halls and opera houses across the globe, arts organisations, ensembles and soloists have hit the internet in an attempt to plug the creative chasm that the coronavirus has left in its wake. Ross and other arts commentators have been quick to dismiss the live stream concerts as nothing more than a welcome stopgap, helping musicians to keep working and listeners to stay engaged. As Neil Fisher, the deputy arts editor at The Times, tweeted last week, in opera, there is the heat of a great voice, causing a full-body shiver, almost bypassing the ears. Nothing on TV can come close. I don't think anything those critics have said is wrong, Tim, but it feels like it misses out a little bit of the nuance, perhaps. It does. As soon as the live streams began springing up, I was keen to find out from the musicians themselves what it was like performing to an invisible audience. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Sarah. Well, how are you? Yes, is it, is it Timmy? Hi, Timmy. How are you doing? What I found was that although every single person I spoke to agreed, yes, a live stream concert will never, ever be able to replace the real thing, there are a few unexpected consequences of this enforced isolation that, contrary to what Alex Ross will have you think, are pretty encouraging. Okay, so who are these lovely people you've been talking to? Well, I'd been in touch with a few people via email, like the pianists Simone Dinnerstein and Alessio Bax, but the first person I managed to speak to properly, albeit over the phone, was the New York-based percussionist Ian Rosenbaum, who had played Bartok's Sonata for two pianos and percussion in a live stream concert on the 15th, which was organised by the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Centre. Definitely something that, that, that has been a part of what I've done, and especially with, with the Chamber Music Society, they live stream a lot of their concerts. So the- I then managed to get hold of the Israeli pianist Boris Giltberg, who's been doing three live stream concerts a week from his living room. Yeah, um, so this one I did only on Twitter. In the end, there were about 3,000 people. Yeah. But uh... And the principal horn at the Berlin Phil... Sarah Willis, who played in the orchestra's live stream gig last week, which Sir Simon Rattle conducted. 
Let's conduct I was. Were you there? I was sitting on, sitting on fourth horn very proudly. <laughs> yeah. And did they find playing to empty concert halls, empty rooms, pretty weird? Absolutely. Ian and Sarah, especially. Sarah described the bizarre feeling of getting up on stage in full concert dress, applauding their soloists after Berio's Symphonia, mm. and being greeted by deafening silence after Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, which builds up this incredible momentum towards its conclusion and cries out for an audience's response. Um, and the second half, we played Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, which finishes in a flourish, and it was just like nothing. <laughs> And that was yeah. that was really a little odd. Tumbleweed. Yes, indeed. Ian, on the other hand, who was playing as part of a much smaller ensemble, Bartok, again, made me laugh when he said it was like combining the worst parts of a live gig and the worst parts of a recording session. It was kind of funny because for me, it like it had the negative parts of recording sessions and concerts like it had both of those things together in that it felt like a recording session you know because we were in a room by ourselves uh, even though they told us to imagine it was a performance you mm. know to try to feel that way but still it's not like it was a recording session where we were playing all of the parts of the piece many times and editing it together it wasn't that at all we just kind of played the piece yeah um and so, so not only did it feel like a recording session but that you didn't have the benefits of a recording session to be able to make it as perfect as you want to be, um, did you get a sense that because they were playing with others they could at least feed off the energy of those around them yeah absolutely uh let's see a lawyer who played a live stream bark concert with simone dinnerstein the pianist said that the musical connection with those around her felt much deeper than usual she described being able to delve further into the intricacies of the music than if she had to project onto an audience, which actually reminded me of something that the pianist Stephen Huff wrote about musicians who play for friends rather than for a public audience. Apparently the Polish pianist Leopold Godowski was a, a mere shadow of himself in public and only revealed his true genius at small parties for a few friends. So for these players there was absolutely no sense of connection with the online audience? Well actually yes. Simone described the concerto rather eloquently in her email as Music being created at this very moment by musicians who are experiencing what everyone is currently experiencing. In a way, it's an even stronger bond between performer and audience than ever, even though we are not in the same room. And did any others agree? Yeah, that was something that both Boris and Sarah described. A definite feeling that although it was an invisible audience, it was an audience nonetheless. I I think so. Yeah, it's not, it's not something I thought about, but yes, now now saying that I do agree. I think that we are all, or most of us, are in the same situation, and we we probably are lucky to have you know the online channels of communication so available and so open. I just saw that someone commented on the Facebook stream that uh, you should interact with the audience after the performance. And I was thinking maybe it's something I could do on mm. Friday. What also struck me was this sense of duty that the players felt to provide moral support in a time of crisis and the sense of purpose that came with that. It was quite moving to hear Boris speak about how he knew exactly what he needed to do so keen to do it because I knew I was keen to do it as soon as I saw other people doing it on, on Twitter but 
in these last days, I try to understand why exactly. And I think what I figured out is that I always felt throughout my entire life that I was really lucky to be able to do what I love as a profession. Mm. And I feel like a social responsibility to, in a way, to say thank you to the world for giving me these opportunities throughout my entire life. And if now I can do this thing for whoever takes interest and whoever might enjoy it and whoever you know might get a little good mood from it, then it feels like the absolute right thing to do. And as I said, I, I felt that this this gave me a real sense of purpose over the last few days. I'm really glad all these musicians are sharing their music and so many people are able to enjoy it. But does any of what they've said so far really refute Alex Ross's statement that this is a temporary situation, that this is... Does it make a case for streaming going beyond our current unexpected circumstances? Yeah, well, Boris, who had never done any kind of live streaming before, was pretty blown away by the number of people he'd reached... He had 16,000 live viewers at its peak and from countries across the globe. It's, it's, it's encouraging and a little bit overwhelming just in, you know, it never had an audience of 24,000 people. I spoke to the digital comms teams at the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Berlin Phil, and they told me a similar story. At its peak, the Philadelphia Orchestra, who were live streaming Beethoven's Fifth and Sixth Symphonies with good old Yannick, had nearly 6,000 viewers, and on the day I spoke to them, they clocked up a total of 275,000 just for that one concert. So that's people going back and watching it after it had been Mm. streamed. The Berlin Phil, meanwhile, had nearly 200,000 new viewers on their digital concert hall, and that included 800 from Iran. So that's way more than you could squeeze into their respective consoles. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose that's unsurprising. But it was what Boris then said that took me a little bit by surprise. I think there's another thing in play. When we are on stage, there is always a divide between the audience and the performer. For classical music particularly. I think in other genres, mm. it's less unbridgeable because, you know... Um, a pop singer, rock singer would all, always interact with the audience. I know some musicians who do it really well, Albrecht Meyer, the oboe player, uh, but he does it in a very natural way. I didn't have this, you know, easygoing interaction because normally there's so much code associated with classical music concerts. You go on stage, there's always applause, you take a bow, you sit down and you begin to play. And that's it. And maybe part of these barriers are just in my mind. I'm sure that the audience wouldn't mind horribly if someone would talk a little bit but here maybe it's also a chance of breaking down this wall because like previously i always loved doing um, signings after concerts because that was the closest i could get to the audience in a regular concert setting it would be a chance just to talk to people mm. um, but maybe maybe these kind of streams give a different opportunity I hope that at some point we will go back to concert halls just to be able to experience really good sound again. But maybe maybe the concert, you know, if this goes on for a while, maybe the concert experience will change slightly. So uh, from what I understand, you, you mean that perhaps there is something new that we're learning through this method of live, live streaming, a kind of... Exactly, ma- exactly. That, that, yeah, that makes it more... 
perhaps personal isn't the right word, but two-way... Um... Uh, two-way, but, but, but also, yeah, I think the, the result of this two-way, maybe it will feel more accessible in general. Yeah. Because that's one of the one of the things which, you know, if you read polls of why people might not go to a classical music concert, the fact that it is perceived as inaccessible often figures out quite highly. Mm. And people think, you know, that's, you need to have some kind of inside knowledge. So Boris is viewing this as an opportunity to learn from his new circumstances. Essentially, yeah. I put the idea to Sarah, who was, as it turns out, the perfect person to speak to on the subject. She's been running what are called horn hangouts for years and works closely with the Berlin Phil's Digital Concert Hall. So she's very au fait with this online musical digital community. Well, as an orchestral musician, I would only um, agree up to a point. Nothing can ever replace a live concert. Yeah. Nothing ever, ever. And the feeling you have in a live concert, the, the experience, the bonding. I mean, of course, I, we're doing everything we can in the music business these days to get rid of that divide between um, audience and performers. You know, whether it's building a hall like the, the Boulezal here in Berlin, where it's in 360 degrees or whether it's um, putting the orchestra down flat or near the audience or seating people in the audience, we're doing everything we can to get rid of that barrier. And that's something I really, it's really important for me to say. Yeah. When we started the Digital Concert Hall in, um, when was it, 2008, eight, nine? that's when the first, first ideas were being floated around, people said to us, are you absolutely mad? They said, it's going to stop people coming to your concerts. And I, we had many long meetings about this. And um, a lot of the, you know, especially the, the, the older colleagues in the orchestra they they were like no 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 we can't do this it'll stop people coming and we've discovered over the years it's exactly the opposite every venue we play at all around the world when we're on tour people are waiting for us at the stage door they they address us by our names they know who we are they know exactly who plays what they say we've we've watched you on the digital concert hall for all these years and we just had to come and hear you live you're only five hours away from our house we drove all this way we're so happy to meet you you know if people yeah. are coming because of the digital concert yeah. hall, um to our concerts <laughs> It seems to me that despite the devastating impact this pandemic is having on musical life, there is amazingly a slither of a silver lining to be found here. The last person I spoke to was actually an old friend of mine, David Taylor. He's worked behind the scenes for various orchestras in both the UK and abroad. He's been running this daily blog series with tips for freelance musicians on how to market themselves and capitalise on this boom in live streams. And he's backed up what Sarah and Boris said to me. Yeah, so um, it's definitely been a crazy week for, for orchestras in general. And as you mentioned, this, the blog thing I've done last week on potentially has been an unexpected opportunity for orchestras or a, a probably more realistically getting something unexpected from a bad situation that yeah. means it's not a complete write-off. Exactly. Um, so the, the bits that I'm fascinated with is that we're now going to be forced to be online. And as a sector... We've kind of survived the last 5, 10, what, even 12 years. Was it 12, 15 years since Facebook? Mm. Um, with almost token gesture social media and not really putting... It's like toe in the water, not jumping in, and not really pushing forward. And I think the disconnect between where we are as a sector, this is generalising massively, but the disconnect between where we are as a sector and where 
the rest of the world is and different institutions and organizations and art forms are is is growing and and what was going to happen during this time is we're being forced finally to actually go on and really try and find some creative ways of doing this which i think is really exciting it's a crap situation but there's certainly something exciting in it that's Mm. that's the hope i have anyway he pointed out that contrary to what some will have you believe Classical music is still really important to people and actually growing in popularity. And that's obvious when you look at streaming statistics in 2018, for example, streams of classical music increased by 42% compared with Mm. a 33% rise for UK music overall. What can work and what doesn't. And the bit that I think, again, is a great opportunity is that classical music is one of the biggest growing streaming genres on the internet. And that's unbelievable when you think about all the things about classical music dying out or not connecting with young people and the evidence isn't true based on the meritocracy of streaming so how can we potentially reimagine what we do on a visual side of the internet to to capitalize on the fact that we have this great attention there um going back uh, i recently consulted for the new world symphony orchestra in miami for a, a viola visions festival mm-hmm. uh, that they were doing which is a one week long viola repertoire festival which you wouldn't normally think would be bums on seats attractive selling resonating online thing to try and sell um but what they were very keen on was live streaming six events over five days and trying to connect on global audience so my job was to try and help with the strategy of one connecting to people uh, engaging with them and also building supporting content around the festival itself that empowered the same ethos and mentality and uh, talking points uh, and one of the things that we were very keen on doing was during the concerts was connecting to people and talking to them and making authentic conversations. We had people tuning in the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, etc. And um, after the first initial concerts, we found that people then were checking in and saying hello to each other before I'd even got to replying or saying something. Uh, and they were building their own mini online community and chatting around this. It's almost a digital space. Some of them were showing photos of how they were watching at home with cheese boards and wine or uh, takeaway pizza and stuff um so with that we there's this whole potential not to just click go live and walk off and then come back again in a few hours later and say we then something to connect to people it was reimagining what connection and engagement through live streaming could be for a concert mm. which was really fascinating and from there we was it weekly facebook engagements increased by ten thousand six hundred ninety three percent which yeah. is something i'm very very proud of um Wow. And also on the back of that, we then also created additional content around it. So trying to get people to submit their own viola playing excerpts, um, masterclasses and Q&A elements, uh, and all these various bits of content. So it's creating a body. David went on to make the interesting point that before the pandemic, there might have been cynicism or apprehension or lack of buy-in, especially from those managers within orchestras. Mm. Let's be honest, some of them come across as a bit reactionary, perhaps. I don't know if that's a controversial thing to say. But right now, there's never been a more sympathetic and grateful audience. So it's the time to experiment, surely. And obviously, there are still those that don't have access to the infrastructure you need to live stream, and that's a big problem. And as Sarah pointed out, it's important that what you're streaming is decent quality otherwise you could end up putting more people off than what you bring in but the point is still valid and i still am confident that we can squeeze something positive out of this whole nightmare situation
Fisher, you're making it up. Why aren't you using the Encoder app like everyone else? What's Encoder? It's a music library app you can download right now. Start with a one-week free trial, then subscribe for just £9.99 a month to access the complete sales and hire catalogues of 100 publishers, including Boozy and Hawks, Baron Writer, Chester and Novello. But what if I want to write on my score with a pencil? Yeah, you can annotate the score with Encoder and share your markings with everyone else. Sir Simon Rattle literally called it the future of music making, duh. How do you spell Encoder? Not that again. From the top, gents. Almost everything that we would usually cover in this following segment has been cancelled, but here are just a few of the things you can catch online instead. The Royal Opera House is doing a weekly stream of ballets or operas, which will then be available on demand via their Facebook and YouTube channels. 2009's Aces and Galatea is on the 3rd of April, and the 2010 outing of Jonathan Miller's Cosse Fantute on the 10th of April. Opera North, the Met Opera, Vienna State Opera, Bavarian State Opera, Teatro Massimo and Teatro Reggio are also streaming past productions, so you are spoilt for choice on the opera front. Mm, The arts and culture streaming platform Marquis TV has extended their trial period to 30 days. Opera streaming platform operavision.eu has an archive of productions from across Europe, all available for free. And the Berlin Phil has opened up its digital concert hall for this next month. Which is an enormous resource. Absolutely amazing stuff on there. With regards to live streams, from the 26th of March, the LSO are streaming full-length concerts on Sunday and Thursday evenings, with each concert available up to midnight on the day of broadcast. Every evening at 6.30, there's a live organ recital from Worcester Cathedral on Facebook Live. Boris Giltberg and Igor Levitt and Yo-Yo Ma are broadcasting regular solo recitals from their living rooms too. Mm. The director of the Dresden Music Festival, Jan Vogler, has put together a 24-hour live stream marathon entitled Music Never Sleeps NYC, which starts on Friday the 27th. The musicians involved include countertenor Anthony Roth Constanzo, pianists Alessio Bax and Lucille Chung, composer Nico Muli and violinist Yevgeny Kutik. And lastly, the composer Nick Green has set up an online social distancing festival, a hub of video, streaming clips from rehearsals, filmed scenes, concerts and dances. In amongst all of this, it's surely important not to forget some of the upcoming birthdays and anniversaries. March the 29th is the 118th birthday of William Walton, whilst the 31st marks the birthday of Joseph Haydn, this week's Analysee. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word. Ferruccio Bassoni and Sergei Rachmaninoff both were born on April the 1st, and Andre Previn and Julian Anderson were born on the 6th. Finally, the 7th of April marks exactly 215 years since the premiere of Beethoven's Eroica and 296 years since the premiere of the greatest piece of all time, Bach's St John Passion.
If you're wondering what can I do to help the music industry during this pandemic, we have left links to the various petitions making the rounds on social media in the description below. Also bear in mind, if you have already bought a ticket for a concert, opera or festival that's been cancelled, you could donate the price of the ticket to the organisation instead of requesting a refund. You can also write to your MP and lobby for a universal basic income of £400 a week for the self-employed, which equates to the living wage, or, as in Norway, pay them 80% of their average income over the past three years. You could request statutory sick pay for all from day one of self-isolation and easier access to benefits and an application process that recognises how freelancers pay their taxes. Don't forget to look after yourself as well. There are several organisations working to support the mental health of musicians in the UK. Music Minds Matter and Music Support are free 24-7 helplines run by Help Musicians UK for anyone in the industry struggling with mental health and or addiction. And the British Association for Performing Arts Medicine, or BAPAM, they connect performing artists and musicians with free specialist health support. Once again, find out how to contact them in the description below. What's great about those organisations is they were there the whole time. Mm, well, uh, we might need them more now, but much like whatever the NHS, irrespective of the crisis, they're there for you as individuals at any time you are personally having a crisis. It's just we're more aware of it right now because as a nation we're having one. Super organisations we should support all the time. Tim, there's a whole raft of people who need thanking from your corona feature. That's true. There are a bunch of people that I need to say thank you to. The most obvious ones being Sarah Willis, Boris Giltberg, Ian Rosenbaum and David Taylor. I managed to catch them all on the phone. But as well as that, I got really lucky in getting through to Lucille Chung, Alessio Bax, Elizabeth Hilsdorf at the Berlin Phil, Emmanuel Saison... Simone Dinnerstein, Ashley Stammer at the Philadelphia Orchestra, and Robert Gilder. What generous people, even if they have got a little bit of extra time on their hands at the moment. We're going to be taking a break now for a little while, whilst we refresh and reassess ourselves, go and learn some new music, listen to some stuff. But listeners, please stay safe, stay inside, if that's the right thing to do, and you'll be hearing from us again soon. I didn't. Well, see, no, I got the first bit about about it being in the wrong key. Yeah. But I didn't extrapolate the donkey reference at the Blackpool. But nice. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs>